0: We are once again. It is another Monday. That means it's another dose of Lions of Liberty with your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, myself, Mark Claire. And it's not just I returning this week, also returning will be my friend, Eric Brakey, former and, if all goes well, which I believe it will, future state senator from the wonderful state of Maine, where I've spent many a summer growing up. Uh, Looking forward to speaking to him and uh, just an update on my personal life for those of you. Following along, for those of you who heard last week, um, my stint in Mexico, where I was staying with my family for a bit, has come to an end, and we are now officially landed in the free state of Florida. It's a bit of a new beginning, and uh, to that end, sometime in the next couple weeks, I will have an announcement right here about a little bit of a new beginning for myself. But I'm going to leave that as a little bit of a teaser for now. I'm just going to leave you wondering and pondering as I guide you into this conversation with my friend Eric Brakey. We recorded this uh, a couple weeks ago. And if you were a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride on Patreon, patreon.com slash lions of liberty, or if you were a locals, whatever, I don't know what they call people on locals, locals, local, local, localers, localers. I don't really know. But if you support us there or on Patreon, you get to see interviews like this one live as they happen. That being said, here is my discussion with good old Eric Brakey. (laughs) Well, 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 look who it is. He is back beard and all, even though supposedly he's had it for a while. Um, I'm pleased to be here today with someone who's been on the show a number of times. I believe the last time was a debate. Actually, no, the last time was a debate with me, with yours truly. Yeah, over Edward Snowden. Yeah, that was the last Dave Smith debate. But of course, he is now running for office again for Maine State Senate. Please to welcome back Eric Brakey. Eric, are you ready to roar?
1: I'm ready to roar, Mark. And my only regret is that my Lions of Liberty coffee mug is still in Texas.
0: Oh no, that's too bad. Are you going to be able to get it back? What happened? Is it is it being held hostage somewhere? Uh,
1: I, my wife's got it.
0: <laughs> okay, oh, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But anyway, yeah, I, I kind of well before we even get into anything else, I think really now that I thought of it again, I, I think the first question to ask is, uh, you know, how do how do you feel? I know it's been a while, but how do you feel coming off that debate with me um, about Edward Snowden? Now, I will I will admit. All the polls I posted on Twitter, I think a Patreon poll, you did win that debate, but it was, it was closer. I had more support than I might've thought I would get. I was getting in the thirties to forties. So I don't feel like I got trounced.
1: I, you know, I think Edward Snowden being generally regarded as a, as a hero in the libertarian movement. I think that you were taking the much tougher position, uh, a, a contrarian position. And, uh, you know, I commend you for that, that sometimes we need people to, to question the things that, uh, we take for granted.
0: Yeah. I don't even know where I actually fall in it. I just went as hard into that as I as I could because hey, it, it's a showdown, you know?
1: But yeah, no, that was a fun fun debate. It was fun doing the debate with Dave. I um I still hear about that one all the time. Whenever I kinda end up in a circle of libertarians, people tell me, Oh yeah, that that debate with Dave Smith. Uh so yeah, no, I appreciate I appreciate you uh uh being the 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 debate moderator for the liberty movement. Um and, uh, yeah, I, it's glad to, glad to be back on the show with you.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, um, so why don't we start by just talking about, I, th- I think the last time we just did a one-on-one, at least on, uh, on this program, you were running for Congress. That was a couple of years ago. And Dave actually brought this up in the debate, how you kind of got railroaded. I, I think the neocons were, were involved. There was some chicanery there or a, a campaign against you anyway. Can you kind of get into a little bit more of what happened there?
1: Yeah. So this was 2020. I just come off of, you know, I'd served two terms in the state Senate. I had been the Republican nominee in the state for U.S. Senate. So I had a lot of support, uh, you know, especially coming off of accomplishments like constitutional carry uh, during my my time in legislative office. So I had a lot of support with the party. I went into this race for the second district of Maine, which is um, it, it, it's kind of the red half of the state of of, of Maine. A Maine. you might think of Maine as a blue state or a purple state, but the second district is northern Maine, where it's like frontier attitude. It's like geographically the biggest district east of the Mississippi, a very rural uh, people love their guns and they want the government to leave them alone. So kind of natural libertarians uh, in, in, to a certain degree. Um, and, yeah, I went into that race with, it was, you know, a strong campaign, with strong messaging, uh, strong built in support uh, and. Then, um, yeah, as a couple of things kind of went haywire towards the end, I mean, first of all, COVID hit, uh, and then the election date was moved like, you know, try planning for, uh, try planning for, uh, an election when they can just, ar- the, the Democrat governor can just arbitrarily change the election date. Mm. Uh, so it was pushed out for an extra month, which kind of gave some of the neoconservative forces in the Washington DC establishment enough time to realize that they were in trouble uh, in this race that they were going to get a, uh, a Ron Paul another Ron Paul in Congress, I think the exact words from, um, from, um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, as he was yelling at someone at the club for growth club for growth was backing me in that race. He was yelling at them saying, this guy's going to be another Justin Amash or Thomas Massey. What are you thinking? Like <laughs> supporting this guy. Like, well, so yeah, we
0: know system. that's why, <laughs> that's why people are supporting you.
1: So it was a certain kind of, I guess, backhanded compliment there. Um, You're like,
0: thank you very much, sir. I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like being compared to those guys there, you know, that. I, anyway, um, but we, we were in a solid position, but kind of in the last few weeks, we saw this, um, both one of my opponents kind of went on like a kamikaze campaign, smear campaign against me with, uh, in, in TV, that kind of hurt me a little bit.
0: What were you were you racist were you uh sexist misogynist what, what do we go with here
1: no I was being called a never trumper um which I've always considered myself a sometimes trumper <laughs> uh you know it's like I get attacked by the never Trumpers for being too pro trump and I get right. uh, I get attacked by the I get attacked by people with Tds on both sides for like right. not being right on the Trump issue and I just like I'm for liberty and I'll be with him whenever he's for it I'll be against him whenever he's against it you know so what what have you um so i got attacked for being a never trumper my old Coco commercial where when i was a professional actor you know about this Vita Coco commercial mark do you
0: i don't think i've seen this no
1: <laughs> all right well maybe i don't bring it up very often it should has, i pull it, it up has, right
0: now i mean uh, uh, I, I will <laughs> definitely look it up after this interview so and I'll post it in the show notes so everyone will see it.
1: Well, when I was, before I was in politics, when I was a professional actor working in New York City, I did a co- uh, commercial for Vita Coco coconut water, which happened to feature men dancing in Brazilian speedos, uh, you know, to uh, <laughs> drink a coconut water. Not a fun at school,
0: time. I imagine, right? Just, this isn't a normal no, no, setting no. for that kind of thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it looks weird when you kind of take a little clip of it out of context, as I've certainly found. But if you see the whole like, 60-second commercial altogether. It's a fun, family-friendly commercial. Anyway, my opponent took that little clip of it out of context, <laughs> ran TV ads against me. Oh, Air wow. break, he's a clown. Look at him dancing in a Speedo. And, he's, and he wants to burn Trump stuff or something or another. Anyway, that hurt me a little bit. But what really hurt was in the final kind of stretch, we kind of out of nowhere, um, a super PAC emerged um, that spent about a half a million dollars against me. In the final weeks mostly on tv ads and mailers uh saying i was peas in a pod with alexandria casio cortez and uh, and basically saying i was an ever trumper this was the line that they kept using against me uh because basically for things i had said when i was supporting senator rand paul in the primary mm-hmm. against him when the debates were so hot and heavy um because i was rand's campaign chair for the state right um so yeah that got dropped on me and um yeah, it, it, it sunk us. The woman who was running a kamikaze campaign against me um, didn't win. I slipped from first place. And kind of the guy, the establishment candidate who nobody had really been paying much attention to because he'd been polling in third place the entire time, he kind of came right through the middle and uh, won the nomination and then went on to lose uh, in the general election in a district that Trump carried. So it was a big wow. pickup opportunity for the Republicans but it was clear that they would rather lose with someone they could control than win with someone that they could not. And I've actually tried to kind of over the years, just, you know, I'm not dwelling on it. I've moved on with my life, but it was curious to try to figure out where this money came from, what the super PAC was, because their big donor was, they were 501c4 organizations that don't have to disclose their donors, which, Hey, fine by me, free speech. I'm not one of these people saying that they need to disclose everything, But it was interesting to find out that the 501c3 organizations, one was affiliated with Kevin McCarthy, the the Republican uh, leader. Um, One was affiliated with Mike Pence. uh, And one was the Republican Jewish Coalition, which I guess they just don't like that I'm forgetting out of the wars in the Middle East.
0: Uh, Well, that means you're anti-Semitic, too. So, yeah, that's not going to work. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's all the forces, uh, all from your own party, basically, seemingly for the most part.
1: Well, I don't think they've ever forgiven me for um, how we stood up to them at the national convention in 2012 uh, in the showdown between Ron Paul and Mitt Romney when they kicked me out of that convention as a national delegate. So, yeah, I don't think the Republican establishment on the national level level has ever forgiven me for that. I think the establishment in my own state has, uh, you know, on the state level in Maine has mostly realized that they kind of need me. And so they've made peace with me. Uh, they certainly wanted me to run for state Senate again because no Republican's been able to win this seat ever since I left it. Oh. Uh, but, uh, but you know, long story short of it all, the, the conclusion I've come to after two federal campaigns for office is a realization that the federal government, these seats in Congress are so heavily guarded. It's a very heavily, you know, heavily fortified citadel of corruption there. And it is very easy for them to stop uh, individuals who try to run for those large federal seats, um, and, and make a difference there, but they can't stop us on the state level. And I think this is the Achilles heel of the whole system of corruption is we've got to get liberty loving principled people into the state legislatures across this country, use the principles of nullification to uh, defund this out of control federal government and to stop the enforcement of their unconstitutional laws and mandates. So we can do that if we get good people in on the state level. I'm very encouraged seeing more and more good people running uh, every election cycle and getting elected. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm focusing my energies: taking back my old state senate seat and uh, and taking the fight for liberty into uh, in, in a. I think we can win this in a decentralized fashion through the state. So that's where I'm taking my fight. Uh,
0: a lot of people. In our circles anyway, you know, depending on what side of that debate between you and Dave uh, they were on, might hear your tale and say, well, you know, that's why we can't do this Republican Party thing, because they're just trying to railroad you if you get to any level of power. Um, and maybe in a way you answered answered the question already in the sense of, of well, that's why you're focusing on the state level. Uh, but do you see, I mean, what is your response to, to libertarians who would say, like, you're just not going to make any headway with the Republican Party if you want to do anything, at least and you're it, maybe even admittedly above the state level, it's just never going to happen because they're they're not open to people like you, at that level anyway.
1: I don't think anything good is ever going to happen on the federal level, whether it's through the Libertarian Party or the Republican Party. It It's it's the, the incentive structure of the whole system are all wrong. Uh, it's going to have to come from the states and from the bottom-up people standing up there. And what I would say to my Libertarian Party friends, and I will say, I actually, I found out since the debate with Dave that I could, in fact, join the libertarian party and 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 also be a registered republican hmm. i thought it was mutually exclusive so i signed up for my local main libertarian party all i had to do was sign the kind of the non-aggression pledge which i agree uh, agree with the non-aggression principle uh, and so i've kind of got dual citizenship now though of course i'm running as a republican uh, i think that is the most effective vehicle for getting elected if that's your goal <laughs>
0: Well, friends, like I said, I just landed here in the free state of Florida. And one thing I've learned about Florida, it is not quite like California. You do not see those marijuana signs everywhere you go. uh, And it's a little bit harder to get some of those medical needs fulfilled, so to speak, which is why it's even more important that I have my friends, Carlos and Vanessa Abelar, who are the world's best and friendliest and coolest dealers of CBD, which of course is legal all over the country, it can be delivered directly to your door and CBD is just fantastic for those aches, for those pains, for that insomnia. If you have trouble relaxing and calming down that brain at night, I know I sure do. And uh, the products from Carlos and Vanessa over at Paloma Verde CBD have just done wonders for me. Uh, I can't recommend them highly enough, especially those incredibly tasty gummies. My God, I just want to eat them all at once. But I have to resist because that's just not this is not the smart thing to do. Of course, if you did do that, you'd be fine, you know, you would be would be relaxed, but you would not be high because of course, CBD is from the non-psychoactive part of the cannabis plant. So you don't need to worry about being paranoid or any of that stuff. You can just help those aches, help those pains. Have a nice relax and by the way, you get 20% off if you use discount code ROAR at checkout. So head over to palomaverdecbd.com. Get 20% off. Oh, and did I mention free shipping on all orders over $75? I don't know if I did, but I just did now. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Grab yourself some treats. Grab yourself some salves. Take that 20% off by using discount code ROAR at check. Do you think that will be used against you in a future? Like, oh, this guy, we found out he's he signed up as a libertarian, and I you know that means he <laughs> probably believes in drag shows and all this. Are you are you concerned about that being used against you? I don't know. Let them try. Yeah, I mean, what what is going to be <laughs> a concern? I, what you should do is get ahead of it. You should actually use that that Vita Coco ad is in your own ad campaign, so they can't even come after you. That's what I would do. But I'm not your campaign manager.
1: I've already done a few uh, funny response videos over the years, but um, as far as... Uh, you know, in politics, if if they can't find something on you, they'll make something up about you. So you might as well just stand up for what you believe in. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I joined the Libertarian Party as, a, I guess, I, they've got like two tiers of membership. So I'm like bottom tier of membership because I'm not a registered Libertarian. Um, mostly just because there's a lot of friends there and a lot of good people, I think, who mean well. And I'd like to be in on the conversation with them. But I ultimately want to make practical change in terms of Getting my own state, the state of Maine, you know, back on track economically and in terms of protecting and restoring the freedoms that we've lost over the last couple of years, and I could be on the outside throwing stones for a long time, as you know, if I was just a Libertarian Party candidate who um, b- was never going to be able to break through kind of the two-party duopoly because of the way the rules are, are written, uh, or I could run as a Republican, start with a base of thirty percent of the vote. And go out and knock doors and uh, and win the rest of the votes that I need. So it's a it's a better it's just a better vehicle all around um, if your goal is to win elections.
0: Yeah, I think that speaks to it right there. It really just depends on your goal. If your goal is literal political change in terms of affecting legislation and this sort of thing, uh, then I I don't see how anyone could argue for the Libertarian Party or for the third party. The only good argument for it is if you want to be unrestrained from, you know, having to do those normal political things and you want to be the, the purest voice possible for it. But I guess that begs the question, you know where does that leave us politically? But we don't need to get into all that. I've, I've talked about it uh, way too much over the last uh, few months. And uh, I think it is it is where it is at this point. But I kind of want to circle back to what the last few years were like for you. Um, particularly, I, I don't know how long you were in Maine. I know you ended, were in Texas as well with y'all. So, But you, what, how was Maine specifically during the COVID stuff? How did they react uh, legislatively? That's a state I'm, I really haven't hadn't heard much about. Maybe, maybe for a good reason, hopefully.
1: Yeah, it's been pretty bad in Maine. Um, sadly, you know, when I was in the state Senate, we had a Republican governor who is no libertarian by any stretch, but um came out of the Tea Party movement. His name was Paula page, and uh he was pretty good it, comparatively, if you compared him to other governors across the country, he was one of the best governors uh, on a lot of issues we care about. Uh, I don't believe he would ever have um done what our Democrat governor did when she was in power. Uh, these last couple of years, which is locking down the state, driving people out of business, uh, firing healthcare workers from their jobs, including those with natural immunity, because they didn't want to get a, a vaccine that was medically not necessary for them. Uh, and in fact, it, boy, numbers just came out recently of kind of economic growth numbers. And right next door to us, New Hampshire is growing economically, according to their GDP. And uh, we just got news that our economy shrank over the course of the last year. Uh, so. Uh, it's yeah. When you, when you treat the economy, like just something you can flip on and off like a light switch and not recognize the harm that you're doing to, uh, the capital structure and the harm that you're doing to, you know, just people trying to, to make a living and to get by. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been hard. Now, the sad thing is that there's a lot of people who still believe that it was necessary Mm -hmm. that believe that somehow all of these policies that we went through that, that we were put through by a governor uh, acting in a dictatorial fashion without even you know these weren't laws passed by the legislature this was just mandate decrees um, a lot of people still believe it was necessary and that it somehow saved lives but of course you and I know and i'm sure most of your audience must know that there's there's no evidence backing that up you do a state by state comparison on lockdown states versus non-lockdown states in terms of covid rates and covid fatalities and there is no correlation whatsoever between uh, between these rates and those policies, and as Tom Woods always says, if it really was necessary, if it really was necessary to do such draconian policies to destroy people's lives in in this fashion over the course of such a long period of time, you would expect the 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 uh, COVID rates and COVID fatality rates. You would expect the differences to be profound. Mm-hmm. You to morally justify this. You would expect to be able to look at a look at Florida and look at South Dakota and compare it to states like Maine and California and these other states, and you should be able to say, "Wow, you know, uh, it's 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 so clear." Look at how many people were dying in these states that didn't do these policies versus the smart states like California, and it's just not the case. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that there is a degree of Stockholm syndrome. Uh, there's a degree of people just wanting to believe that you know, with everything that they were forced to sacrifice people want to believe that it was for a purpose that it served a purpose it's kind of like in was it world war 1 or world war 2 when uh people were had had were melting down their like relics in their churches in order to donate metal to the war effort and that metal was never really used for anything it was just you know a propaganda campaign to make people feel invested in the larger fight uh, it's kind of like what we went through with COVID. People were forced to sacrifice. Those sacrifices did not help anything, but people want to believe that it did because otherwise, you'd just be angry at the world. Yeah. Why? Why? Why did they make us do this? And frankly, I do think we need to ask that question: Why did they put us through all of this?
0: Well, I don't want to. I don't want to send you off on, on too much of a, a rabbit hole, I guess. But uh, do you have thoughts on why they put us all through this? It, even if when. I, it's, I don't think they're that stupid at every level. I mean, at some point, the evidence becomes so clear that you that even people who mean well have to would have to if they if they did mean well would have to be relooking at things. But clearly, in a lot of areas, especially, I mean, Los Angeles is about to institute another mass mandate. Uh, I mean, the, the stuff is is still there and coming back. So what do you think is behind it, if not, you know, the purity of, of all of our health?
1: Well, obviously there's politicians who just enjoy the power. They enjoy wielding power over people and it's intoxicating. So there's that. But I think there's also a bit of degree of like otherwise good people who kind of started down this path and not being able to admit to themselves that they were wrong. It's a hard thing to admit that you were wrong, especially if something of such significance. I mean, I remember how difficult it was me when I was younger and a cheerleader for like the war in Iraq uh, and George W. Bush and thinking how great it was. And, you know, and I was just like a teenager who had no impact on policy whatsoever. And it was very hard for me to admit that I was wrong, even though my opinions really had, had no impact on anything. Imagine you are the decision maker and you made the decision to shut down the economy. It led to the devastation of so many lives. Um, and how hard it must be to, to admit to yourself that that was, that you made the wrong call and people suffered for it. You got to, you got to find ways to rationalize it for yourself, or otherwise you realize that you might be a terrible human being. Um, and so, yeah, I I think that's a, that's a part of it too. People just don't want to admit it. Um, and so the policymakers, I think we caught into this thing. It's like, once we accepted the basic premise that these kind of policies were necessary and helpful, which they weren't, uh, if you did not accept the fact that it wasn't helpful, all you could do was continue to double down when they when they didn't work. It's like the same thing with like the gun control debate. It's like every time they propose a gun control measure and it doesn't work to stop gun violence. In fact, oftentimes it makes it worse because less law-abiding citizens are able to defend themselves, rather than going back and re-examining maybe this whole the premise of this is flawed, they just have to keep doubling down and pushing for more gun control and more gun control and more gun control. It's always that we haven't cracked down hard enough, and that's why the policy is not working.
0: What has been your sense kind of on the ground in your district? Are you getting more of that sense of what you described of people believing it, thinking it's, you know, doubling down and, and really begging for that stuff. Or are, is there a, at this point, a healthy dose of skepticism? And, and I'm, I'm curious too, if there's going to be at least some portion of the people that in your district that you're, that you're trying to win over that are going to be in that more, we're doubling down. We believe this whole thing is exactly how it was laid out to us. So what are, what is your strategy about how to, how to speak to those people who might see you like a maniac for not wanting to strap masks on five-year-olds and inject everyone you see with, with whatever. (laughs)
1: Well, I do think that in in Maine, at very least, except for on like the fringes, most people have moved on from this and don't want to go back. Even if they think it was necessary at the time, it's it's like uh, people have moved on. And so frankly, when I go door to door and talk to people, because that's, that's how I, I, I do it. I go door to door. I've knocked on over a thousand doors so far and just talk to voters about what they're concerned about. Some people bring up everything that we went through in COVID the last couple of years. And how crazy it was, or necessary it was, whatever their opinion is. But most people are concerned with like the problem right now, which is the fact that inflation is hitting ten percent. They're losing their savings. They're losing the value of their savings and retirements are diminishing. People on fixed incomes don't know what they're going to do to to get through this time. And so, you know, you and I know that that's a direct consequence of all the policies they put us through the last two years, shutting down the economy. Disrupting supply chains, and then of course printing trillions of dollars out of thin air and hand, and throwing it out of helicopters, like that's uh, uh, of course you know it's a consequence of that. Uh, so I find myself as I go door to door, you know, not rehashing so much um, the the past, and you know, but talking about how we can address kind of the problems we're facing right now. Though so I will say, when I when I get into the main Senate, I very much do want to address uh, what happened uh, and put some laws in place to stop it from happening again. things like at very least, if we're ever going to you know imbue a governor with these dictatorial emergency powers ever again, it should have a we should have in the law that there is a mandatory like sunset on that that it has to be renewed on a regular basis because what happened in Maine, and I think this is what happened in, in most states when they were just telling, oh, it's just 15 days to slow the spread. Mm-hmm. So the legislature voted to give our governor, you know, emergency powers, but they didn't put an expiration date on it. And so she got to milk it for over a year. So, uh, and when Republicans realized how much they'd screwed up, uh, they called for the legislature to come back in and Democrats were like, nah, we kind of like it this way. We kind of like not having to take it's an emergency. Remember? <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an emergency <laughs> that lasts for over a year. Um, so yeah, I, I, I there, there's some reform that needs to happen. But as I go door to door and talk to voters, I've got to talk to them about the issues that, you know, they care about right now. Uh, And and, you know, and thankfully, as a as a Ron Paul libertarian, there's a lot to say about inflation and how we can uh, get it under control, what we can do from the state level, uh, how we can protect people from it. And of course, understanding why in the world it's happening in the first place.
0: Sure. Um, And I do want to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to just go back since you were talking about, you know, how states can sort of put some laws in place to prevent uh, this kind of COVID tyranny from coming back. I'm curious to your opinions on. Um, the kind of law passed in Florida, which might really, if if you look down the little the middle, looking for that purity, uh, might not pass that libertarian purity test. Uh, there's one recent law that prevents uh, employers from uh, requiring COVID vaccines, um, which certainly in a bubble, if we had never heard of the last two years, you might think, well, they sh- the state shouldn't be getting involved in that. The state shouldn't say such a thing to a private business. I'm curious, what would be your opinion on a law like that? Would you favor a law like that in Maine, or would, does that kind of rub against the liberty a too much i guess
1: you know it gives me um it gives me a lot of heartburn uh that <laughs> that, that kind of law um is it is a difficult decision and i think the 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 answer to that question really rests upon what kind of um what kind of federal power is being put upon businesses to per you know to make a particular decision with things like vaccine mandates um I, I believe in using state power to fight back against federal power. I don't believe in using state power to try to control what regular people, the decisions they make in their own lives and their own businesses. I want to leave that. I want to li- leave them be. But if they are being put upon by the federal government and coerced into making particular decisions that are, um, uh, yeah, then then that's a form of tyranny and oppression, and it's inappropriate to use state power against it. So um yeah i i I think it really it really kind of boils down to um you know it really kind of boils down to that i think a better i think a, a, but um you know kind of pushing back in the way that they did in florida i think is kind of uh at best a band-aid i think we need to really get at the root of the problem which is this system where government steals our money and ransoms it back to us with strings attached from the federal level mm-hmm. um you know this is how I mean, we saw this in like healthcare settings, right? Uh, uh, the Biden administration said, if, if hospitals and doctor's offices do not have uh, vaccine mandates on their staff, even though the vaccines did not stop the spread uh, or transmission of COVID and were purely for, uh, purely benefited the individual, not, not, there was no public health benefit to it. Um, uh, he said, if you don't do this, we're cutting off your Medica- Medicare and Medicaid funds. Uh, you know, And I think that just should kind of reinforce just how controlled our healthcare system is by Washington, D.C. through the purse. Uh, we have let kind of them kind of take over, um, control so much of the funding that goes into our healthcare system. And at the end of the day, it's our money they took from us and they're using against us. So. I uh, you know I think that we need to look at and I recently spoke at the Porcupine Freedom Festival in New Hampshire about this idea. I think that we need to look at states um, resurrecting an idea called tax nullification, where the states assert their constitutional role as the parties in the con- uh, in the compact that is the Constitution um, to uh, to review the federal budget and only send to Congress those tax uh, a a proportion of the tax dollars that are being appropriated for constitutional purposes. So basically, like uh, if you had a bunch of different states say, we're going to interpose ourselves between our taxpayers and the IRS, we will collect the federal taxes and we will hold on to them until we get to review the budget. And then if 60% of what you're spending on is constitutional, and of course, that's being generous, you and I know it's a lot less than 60%. But let's say we find 60% to be constitutional, we'll send you 60% of the money. And then when Uh, Washington, D.C., they stomp their feet and say, you can't do that. We're going to withhold your federal funds and say, well, go ahead because we've got the federal funds and we'll supplant whatever federal highway funds you're threatening to take away from us. We'll supplant it with the funds that we're holding on to and we didn't send you.
0: Do do you mean that like the state of Maine with a state? Because this is what I'm kind of spinning my head around is like, what about the fact that all these companies, like you could like the state of Maine could say something, but what if you have all these major corporations in Maine and they're like, well, you know, the federal government is who takes the taxes out of, out of our, these paychecks. So, you know, we're, we're, we're still connected to them. We don't care what, what Maine is doing, or would Maine find some way to like be the ones to collect those taxes from those companies? Like, I'm just kind of trying to envision how that might play out. Cause I, I love it in concept. I'm trying to, th- you know, capture my, wrap, wrap my head around how it would work out in reality.
1: I think states would have to assert that if you're doing business in Maine or you're earning income in Maine or whatever state, that you're going to pay your assessed federal taxes to us mm-hmm. and, we, and we will uh, then th- then send it on to the IRS after this review of the budget. Mm-hmm. And I will say it is a pretty um, perhaps dramatic thing to do. Uh, some people might say, how could you do that? And wouldn't they just crush you if you were a single state doing this, especially a small state like Maine? Mm-hmm. The federal government would come, come against you pretty hard. I agree which is why I think that we need to, uh, with all these liberty legislators we're getting elected across the country, um, and we should look at things like trigger clauses on on bills like these. We should sponsor them and pass them in multiple states and say this will go into effect when okay. X number of states have passed similar laws.
0: It's like a, a free state project pledge in, in a way. Like Once once everyone signs up for this, then we have the, the strength <laughs> to move forward.
1: Right. Once 13 states pass tax nullification laws, we all do it together and tell Washington DC we're we're collecting the funds we're holding on to it and we'll send it to you when we're satisfied that the purposes you are s- seeking to spend them on are uh, are authorized under the constitution under article
0: 1 section 8 what do you tell people going back to the in- the inflation thing which is probably you know we can, we can have all the theories about what our problems about politics may be or may not, but at the end of the day, when people go to the gas pump and that gas is double what it was a year ago and food's double what it was a year ago, I mean, that's what matters to most people. But what do you actually tell people? Because I think our, our libertarian instinct is to just hand the men the Fed and go on a rant about the Federal Reserve, but, but that doesn't really fix the problem in the short term for anybody. So what do you tell people that you can do as someone who's running for state senate? What do you tell people that you can do on a state level to not try to help them with this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I do do that a little bit. I tell them we've yeah. got a demand. It's and hard to resist. The I mean, we are who we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I break it down into kind of, as far as like policy things we can do on the state level, I break it down into three buckets. The first bucket is what can we do immediately to bring down the cost of living for Maine people? Um. And these are what I would call band aid solutions. They're the things we're going to do right now. This is not the long term fix, but these are things we can do right now to to provide some relief. So things like suspending taxes on basic necessities, like the gas tax. Like in Maine, you know, wh- when I go door to door and I talk about the gas prices, people are like saying, "Yeah, the gas prices are bad." Bad, but boy, if it's like this when winter comes around, heating oil is going to just be uh, is going to is going to drive people bankrupt. Uh, that's a big thing. It gets pretty cold up here in Maine and people, people need to be able to afford heating oil um, in a lot, in a lot of, a lot of houses. So suspending, suspending these taxes on some of these basic necessities um, until inflation, let's say like the CPI is below 4%. We suspend it until CPI is below four. Um, uh, um, I'd also like to, anyway, there's various things we can do. I'm also talking about you know giving a tax credit for turnpike tolls and other things just things that where places where the government is nickel and diming us on things that r- people need um let's suspend those taxes until inflation's under control so that's first bucket immediate relief now this, the second and third buckets are just understanding what inflation is if inflation is too uh, too much money chasing too few goods and services then we've got two supply problems we need to address the supply of money and the supply of goods and services so on the supply of money you know there is there that's hard to tackle from the state level yeah. because it's coming from the federal government it's coming from the federal reserve we could pass a resolution of the state legislature demanding our federal delegation support and audit of the federal reserve i think that's something we could do it doesn't have a lot of teeth but it's it's something we could do. And if state legislatures were to start passing that across the country, that would put pressure on Congress to start uh, to to, uh, to um, take that, that that more seriously. Uh, so that would be a good thing. Um, we could also look at things like, you know, I, I go door to door and some people bring up and I, I'm starting to think, you know, maybe it's not so crazy an idea. Like maybe we should start our own state bank and maybe we should start issuing our own currency, which is backed by gold and silver.
0: But then you'd be a statist, Eric, literally.
1: <laughs> well, I'm all for using state power to combat federal power, just not using state power to go against the people. So, um yeah, uh so that's something that's something we could do. That sounds a little radical to some people, but um but the constitution says we can do it. Constitution says the states can only coin, you know, money that's gold and silver. So, maybe let's start coining money that's gold and silver. Give people something that is time-tested a hedge against inflation. Uh, that that could be used in our own local economy. Um, so that's something we could do. Um, that's kind of a big idea. Uh, that's not something that's going to be implemented overnight. Uh, so, but those are things we could do on the the, the supply of money issue. Uh, the supply of goods and services. That's something we can more directly affect on the state level. Uh, so, you know, one thing here in Maine with energy prices being so high. Um, you know, our gas is about five bucks a gallon right now.
0: Which used to be my normal gas price in California. So it's like, it's kind of funny to watch people amazed at what I just was no big deal before. But in California, it's, it's insane, insane.
1: I always said that the Democrats were going to turn Maine into California, and uh, it seems to be what they're doing. Um, thankfully, uh, you know, we don't have the San Francisco problems yet of people defecating in the streets, but I wonder how far away we are from that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we need to develop domestic energy. I mean, there was a big effort to get natural gas pipeline up to Maine, Uh, Massachusetts stood in the way. They didn't want a natural gas pipeline coming through their state. I think that's something that needs to be revisited. That's kind of more niche local stuff that maybe your audience may or may not be interested in. Uh, But one particular thing we can do on a state level, and this is something I think that could be done in every single state, is I don't know what's going on in your state, but we're dealing with a workforce shortage of there's a lot of just, there are so many jobs that are out there available to be filled, but people are not applying for those jobs. Um, and one of the things that w- was put in place when I was in the Senate in the past, uh, by our Republican governor, Paula page was, uh, work requirements on welfare benefits for able-bodied adults without kids. Mm. So basically if you're between the age of 18 and like 50 and you don't have children to take care of, uh, and you're on, let's say the food stamp program for more than three months. So not just kind of a temporary you know, I just need a little bit of a helping hand to get up on my feet again, but you're on this for an extended period of time. There was a requirement that to stay enrolled in the program, you needed to be working or volunteering or doing some kind of jo- a job training, something to get you off the sofa, back into the labor force and, and on your own two feet. Now, this is important for two reasons. One, extended welfare dependency for people who are capable of so much more, that's not helping them. That's not a happy life. That's That's not how you find satisfaction and fulfillment in life. And sometimes we got to look at the difference between helping people and enabling them. So sometimes people need a little bit of a push, especially after everything we've been through the last two, uh, few years where people are, are continue to be paid to stay home and not work. Mm. Um, uh, and then, of course, it would help address the workforce shortage because, I mean, I hear it from employers all the time. They're competing with the welfare roles. Uh, government is paying so much for people not to work. So why would people work? So that was a, a, a welfare reform policy that was put in place. Uh, during the last administration and within the first 30 days of our Democrat governor coming into office, she wiped it off the books. So uh, able-bodied adults without kids can get welfare now for as long as they want and there's no expectation that they need to be trying to get a job uh, and get out there, develop their skills and get back into the workforce. And so a lot of people are just kind of stuck in this place of arrested development that's not good for them and it's not good for our economy.
0: What what actually led to you... Running this current campaign, were you planning this basically for all of the last two years, like kind of in the back of your mind, or was there, you know, while you were doing being a spokesman for Yale and doing other things, or were you did something else like prompt you to say, you know what, I'm going to go back to that seat. That's where they need me. That's where I can be the most useful.
1: It, it was a long kind of decision making process. I mean, truth be told, there was a part of me that after my congressional campaign ended and and it was brutal. I mean, it it, it took a personal toll on me, to be honest. It took a toll on me and and my and my uh, and my family. Um, but you know, I kind of, think at least for the time being, I've sworn off, I swore off kind of doing a federal race ever, ever again. I
0: mean, we'll see just because it's that much more brutal in terms of how they go after you. It's that much
1: more brutal. Um, and boy, it's, it's exhaust. I mean, it's exhausting. Like, so when you're running on a a race on that level, like you just got to sit on the phones and raise money. Like that's what you're doing day in and day out, just calling, dialing for dollars, raising money. Because, uh, you know, what I love about Maine and what I love about like the small legislative districts we have here is that I can go out there and I can knock on every door in the district. I can meet with people face to face. If I try to do that in a congressional race, you know, you, um, I could go out and knock doors every single day. I'm not going to hit a fraction of, uh, of, of, of the district. It's going to make a marginal impact, but I can go out and knock thousands of doors in my state Senate district. And it makes a big impact because it's a much smaller population. Ironically, I I think the size of a Senate district in Maine is about the size of what a congressional district was originally supposed to be, about 60,000 people. Uh, So, you know, the founders kind of, I think, believed early on that as if districts got so big in terms of population, now we're looking at districts are like, you know, uh, something like, you know, um, 750,000 people in a district. How, how do you get, you, you can't know everyone in your, in your district that large. It, it's not really a representative system anymore. Um, so I like that I can get out and meet with people one-on-one. And, and I also think that as a state senator, you have a lot more power than you might realize if you know how to use it to combat the federal government uh, than you might even have in Congress. Because right now, I mean, Justin Amash complains about it all the time in Congress. It's like you sit there, the bill, there's the committee process has become a joke. The amendment process has become a joke. You basically just get to vote up up or down, yes or no on bills crafted behind closed doors by leadership uh, and dropped on your desk with less than 12 hours before the vote. So uh, Congress has become a joke. Uh, In some ways, I kind of look at it and think, well, it would have been nice to have the bully pulpit of being a member of Congress and Mm -hmm. be able to spread the ideas of liberty like Ron and and Massey and Justin Amash have done. Um, I look back on it and I think, you know, from the state senate i was able to pass constitutional carry and that became a that's been a domino effect across the country we, maine was the sixth state with constitutional carry now we're up to 25 and maine was kind of a key domino in that effort um uh, i was able to get welfare reform pass right to try uh, rewrite our medical cannabis laws so now we've got one of the most pro free market uh, uh, cannabis industries in the country if you like if you like cannabis whether it's medical or adult use cannabis, Maine is really one of the most free states for that. And I got to play a great role in and basically leading the process on overhauling completely our medical cannabis laws. Um, so those are things I could do in the state legislature. Uh, you know, in Congress, like even if people agree that like you know cannabis should be uh, descheduled, like nobody can get anything done there. So right. change is going to happen from the bottom up.
0: Tell us a little bit more about the campaign itself. Are you? I mean, obviously, you know, we get cocky here. It's your old seat. Do you see yourself? Do do, are people kind of embracing you as oh, Eric's back? And and, do you think you're going to be kind of welcomed right back in, or are you facing any any challenges uh, within the party? I mean, how's it all shaping up for you?
1: Well, I did have one guy who tried to primary me, but he didn't get the signatures he needed to get on the ballot. So I coasted through the primary with no opposition. Um, But the fight was always going to be the general election. Um, This district. Is currently held by a Democrat. Um he has he he's decided not to run again. I thought the timing was interesting. He announced he wasn't running again when I announced that I was running. Yeah.
0: Maybe a good sign <laughs> about how they see you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> maybe he didn't want to run against me. I also heard maybe he had a health some health concerns, So maybe there may have been some other stuff going on there. The
0: Coca, Vita Coco guy? No way. I'm not messing with that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> But, you know, I did win this district twice with about 60 percent of the vote, and that was pretty much a high watermark for Republicans in this district. Uh, Nobody had won this district uh, on the Republican side as as big as I had uh, both my times there since Olympia Snow, who uh, held this state Senate district district in the past and, of course, went on to be our U.S. senator um, um, in the past. So that was like in 1988, the year I was born. So yeah, I, you know, I campaign very hard. I get out and I connect with people. I was a little nervous when I was getting out to knock doors because it has been like six years since I've knocked on these doors, but I, um, uh, you know, but as I go door to door, it has been, I mean, the encouragement and support has been amazing. I I'm sometimes surprised just like when I knock on a door and before I like open my mouth to introduce myself, they're like, you're Eric Brakey. We've seen you on TV. We're supporting you hundred percent. Put up a yard sign. Like all right, well that was easy, um, but but that's not every house, of course. You know, uh, some people. Uh, but I guess I, I have built up a lot of name recognition in, in the area, at the very least. But it is going to be a fight. This district is the bellwether for the whole state. Uh, this district, which is the uh, Senate seat, if for folks who know Maine, uh, it's Aub- uh, Auburn is the the biggest city in the district. It's like the third biggest city in Maine. it Represents about fifty five percent of the vote uh, in the district. And then I've got some smaller rural towns that are also in the district, New Gloucester, Poland, and Durham. This district is the bellwether. It has predicted the Senate majority in every election for the last 14 years. So whenever Democrats have had the majority, it's been with this Senate seat. Whenever Republicans have had the majority, it's been with this Senate seat. So kind of a lot's of riding on it. Um, no pressure. But I'm kind of getting, <laughs> you know, I work best under pressure, uh, but- but yeah, uh, so I'm just getting out there. It's been, the support has been encouraging. I do have an opponent who is also working very hard. We've crossed paths. She's out there knocking doors. I'm knocking doors, but I think we have clear records. You ever
0: awkwardly walk up the, the same driveway at the same time? <laughs>
1: <laughs> we came close. <laughs> we came close one day. Uh, but um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I you know, at the end of the day, you know, win or lose, and I intend to win, but win or lose, there's certain things you can't control. Mm-hmm. And you just want to know at the end of the day that you left it all on the table. You didn't leave anything undone. Yeah. Uh, so, and the, the, while I used to win this district with 60%. Um, th- there've been a lot of new people moving in the district from like the Portland area, which is, you know, pretty liberal area. So some of the things have been changing here. It's not, um, Uh, I I expect a real fight. And I will say if people want to have a liberty champion in the main Senate, whether you live in Maine or you live in another state where you've seen the work that I've done, you know, sometimes there's a domino effect across the country, like we did with the constitutional carry. I'd like to see a similar domino effect with tax nullification, with defend the guard legislation. There are things I'm going to be pushing the envelope on as far as liberty issues are concerned that have national implications, uh, not just implications for the state. Uh, and certainly I would, uh, ask any of your li- listeners who would like to help make that happen. They could go to breakyforsenate.com and chip in because we also have something in Maine called the Maine clean election act, which is nothing, which is like most government programs is totally the opposite of what it's named, uh, which my opponent is running under, which means she gets $70,000 from the state treasury. So from taxpayers to run her campaign only she does. Well, anyone who wants to run as a, I would call it a welfare for politicians okay. candidate uh, and a lot and a lot do all the pretty much all the Democrats do. And a lot of the Republicans do as well. Um, I've always felt like I couldn't be taken seriously if I was campaigning right. as a fiscal conservative. And the first thing I did was take seventy thousand dollars in right. taxpayer money to buy yard. Wouldn't signs. be
0: the best uh, the best sign signal to, to give.
1: <laughs> so, so I've never touched a dime of that money. I've always raised funds voluntarily from people who believe in the cause that I'm fighting for. And uh, even if people chip in five bucks at breakyforsenate.com, it makes a big difference.
0: All right. Well, uh, certainly we will be following uh, your Senate campaign here, but I don't want to bury the lead here because there's something else you've you've been doing in the last year or so. You have toss your hat into the podcasting game as well, uh, with your show free America now that right. that you've been pumping out just an incredible number of episodes. So why don't you don't just tell everybody, uh, as we wrap up here, what you've been doing there with uh, free America now and why they should go tune in regardless of whether they're looking to support your, your Senate campaign, but hopefully they are as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I have been doing free America now. It started when I was working at young Americans for Liberty and I've, uh, took it independent when I uh, left Young Americans for Liberty to start my state Senate campaign. Truth be told, there was a long pause recently (laughs) because I got so focused on the campaign, but it's up and going again now. Um, And I'm doing an episode about once a week now. Um, uh, I just had a great interview with my good friend, David Boyer, who is the guy who legalized cannabis in the state of Maine, and he's running for state legislature here himself. And uh, we recounted some of the old stories from the Ron Paul 2012 days and all the fights that have taken place for Liberty uh, over the course of the last decade. But I do interviews with people all across the country in the Liberty movement. We have great free range conversations about anything under the sun. Uh, And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, I appreciate the opportunity to do the show and all the feedback I've gotten from people. But when I was paused the show for about a few months, uh, I heard from people. uh, It would be like, when I go to Tom Woods, wedding and people are like, what happened to your show? When are you getting going with that again? Or like, or a guy next across the river in Lewiston, Maine, who owns a bakery and is apparently like a, a, listener to the show. He's like, when are you starting that again? It's been so encouraging all the support. I'm sure, you know, in the podcasting world, sometimes the only feedback you get is like the numbers
0: right. of how many people are listening. Right. Would, it's been great. It's, it's putting the faces to them that changes the, the game. Yeah. Ab- absolutely.
1: So I've accre- appreciated that. Uh, if, and, and of course, one of the best episodes is the conversation I had with you, Mark. Did, we had a great always. conversation, uh, last year, but people can check out free America. Now it's on all major podcasting platforms. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh it, I enjoy doing the show.
0: Uh, Well, Eric, uh, it's been a blast having you on. Uh, You mentioned it once already, but why don't you give just to to get it through these people's heads one more time, let everybody know how they can support your campaign and feel free to plug away if you got anything else.
1: If you want to restore liberty in America from the bottom up from the state level, then you can go to breaky4senate.com and chip in five bucks, 10 bucks, 25 bucks, whatever works for you. I know it's tough economic times, but everything makes a difference. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at Senator Brakey or follow my uh, campaign page on Facebook, which is just Eric Brakey from Maine Senate.
0: Eric Brakey, we will certainly be uh, keeping an eye on and, and cheering on this campaign. I think everybody could probably agree on that. So best of luck. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. All right. Thank you, Mark. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my good buddy, Eric Brakey. I certainly wish him the best of luck. Do check out what he's doing with his campaign. Uh, One guy I can say, uh, he has a track record. He has actually uh, made a difference for the people of Maine uh, with the work he did on constitutional carry there, uh, with work he did on marijuana laws there, uh, and a myriad of other things. So you really couldn't have a better person in state office than a guy like Eric Brakey, in my oh-so-humble opinion. Uh, That being said, That does it for this week. Like I said, I've teased you a little bit. Keep your ears, keep your eyes peeled for a little bit of an announcement from my end in the uh, the coming weeks. And until next time, my friends, as always, live long and live free. And live free. And live free. And live free.